Welcome to season three of the Teacher Collaborative Podcast. This season, we're diving into how K-12 educators are reimagining learning this school year. Needless to say, it's a year filled with unprecedented challenges and opportunities. Massachusetts educators are at the forefront of figuring all this out. This podcast will share their stories and we hope will bring you inspiration and connection to this incredible profession. I'm Maria Fenwick. I'm Kat Johnston. And we're the founders of the Teacher Collaborative, a community for teachers across Massachusetts where you can share ideas, solve challenges, and meet other inspiring educators. Let's pass things off to this season's guest host, Randall Wilkerson. Hi, Randall. Hi, Kat. This episode, we're talking project-based learning with Marvin Vilma, the facilitator of the Passion to Teach Fellowship, and two previous Passion to Teach Fellows, Luisa Sparrow and Jason Weiss. Passion to Teach is a program we run through the generosity of the Shaw Family Foundation, based on the vision of John Rouse. Throughout this conversation, you may hear us mention Passion to Teach or PTT, but what we really want to share with you is that passion plus project-based learning equals awesome, innovative learning experiences for kids. Last year, Louisa organized a student-run coffee cart operated by students with intellectual impairments, while Jason put together an original hip hopera. Both of them had to adjust their projects once the pandemic hit. Here's our conversation. Let me welcome Marvin Vilma, who works with me here at the Teacher Collaborative. Marvin, who are you and what do you do here? Thanks, Randall. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is Marvin Vilma. I'm one of the facilitators with Teacher Collaborative. I've been with the program for two years now. Prior to Teacher Collaborative, I was a teacher at a boarding school in the greater Boston area, teaching 12th grade English and 7th grade French. Nice. So can you tell us a little more about what you facilitate here at the Teacher Collaborative? Absolutely. I have the pleasure of working with innovative teachers who are interested in project-based learning. We talk about ways in which they can really innovate in their classrooms, creating learning experiences for students that are connected to the real world, doing projects that help students gain skills, dispositions, mindsets that really can prepare them for the 21st century. It's great to have you, Marvin. I've got some questions for you, but I'm also excited to hear our two other guests who were actually passionate to teach fellows this past year. Louisa Sparrow and Jason Wise. Could you both introduce yourselves and tell us what brought you to Passion to Teach? Sure. Hi, I'm Louisa Sparrow, and I teach fifth and sixth grade special education at the Perry School in a self-contained classroom for students with moderate intellectual impairment. And something that I was really excited about with Passion to Teach was Um, expanding opportunities for my students to do project-based learning. I haven't always seen that happening in self-contained classrooms, and I really wanted to make that happen. And in particular, I wanted to expand my community-based instruction for my students. And that was what we focused on for our project-based learning last year. Nice. I'll have lots of questions about that soon, but I would love to hear from you, Jason, first. Hey, everybody. Nice to be here. My name is Jason Wise. I teach theater arts at the Haley Pilot School in Roslindale. It's a K-8 pilot school. We have a large special education population. So we take great pride in our specialist team, theater, music, dance, visual arts. And uh, my 2019-2020 Passion to Teach project was an original hip-hopera called Little Rock, focusing on the Little Rock Nine. 
I would say to think Hamilton, but I'm really wary about using such a genius piece in relation to anything that, that I'm doing in my school, but same idea. You know, the thing that really drew me to Passion to Teach was that key word, passion. John Rouse, who taught at the Haley for a period of time and who happened to live right across the street from me for a longer period of time, really believed that teachers should not have to get through all this red tape and jump through hoops in order to do the thing that they love to do the most. So this this program really made that possible. And so that combined with the flexibility that my school provided, the administration's belief in the arts as a real entryway for students from all walks of life, uh, those two things really coalesced into my good fortune to be a part of the program in 2019-2020. Uh, nice. So can you tell us, for all those listeners at home, what is project-based learning? I think one really important component of project-based learning is looking at a real-world type of situation that students might encounter outside of the classroom and bringing that into the classroom to add depth to the learning. I think that students expect to graduate school ready to lead independent lives. And if we're just doing like academics, books, learning, then that doesn't necessarily prepare them for all of the types of situations that they might encounter as adults. And so I think project-based learning is a really critical component of the overall education experience and can lead to a lot of excitement and engagement for students as well. Yeah, I would agree. And I think philosophically, project-based learning holds quality over quantity. There's less of an emphasis on let's try to tackle everything in sort of a haphazard or ad hoc fashion and more of a focus on let's try to figure out what one or two or small handful number of things that we want to do really, really well and excel at them and give the students that opportunity to feel what progress feels like. For me, for theater arts, an obvious example of a project would be a show putting on a performance, which we do in normal times. We do every year, sometimes twice a year. And being able to sort of start at the end and reverse engineer, well, here's our show, here's our date, what do we need to put in place and allow students to really focus on what are the components of that project from a end point back to the beginning and then be able to execute that knowing what is expected really does, like Louisa said, really does model more of a real world functionality. Yeah, I would just quickly add, you know, in addition to creating these real world projects, I'm even wary of using the word project, which is so funny because we call it project-based learning because it is so much more than a project. It's an experience that really helps students to make sense of the world, make sense of themselves, helps them to discover passions of theirs, helps them to discover skills that they have that were probably latent and never really truly uncovered. And that's the beauty of it. There's so much that can be found in project-based learning. And so it's just a sort of discovery experience for teacher and for students. So then when it comes to the Passion to Teach Fellowship, how does Passion to Teach really support or guide teachers in building these really multifaceted experiences for students. I'm going to jump in with that one because, of course, that was the most fun part for me, the most productive piece for me working with PTT. So teachers are notoriously bad at marketing themselves. We are notoriously bad, <laughs> I think, at asking for help. I think there's a lot of teaching that says, I'm on this island, I got to do it myself, and here's the resources that I have. And uh, it's part of what makes it one of the most exciting, but also one of the toughest jobs. When I started with Passion to Teach, that was exposed to me very quickly, you know, the, the blinders that I had had on. I remember one exercise that Marvin led where it was 
let's make a thought bubble about how many people you actually know that could help you realize your passion. And so what that did for me was it gave me a new way of looking at what I do, but ultimately what that did for the students is it gives them a broader experience. It gives them, if we're gonna use the term project, it gives them more access and more investment into what they're doing because suddenly there's a whole new round of stakeholders that are involved and the possibilities just start to exponentiate and become really endless. I mean, by the time we finished that thought bubble project, I couldn't even get to all the people that suddenly just kind of appeared out of the woodwork. So I, I think that's what it does. It, it opens up avenues, it opens up ways of thinking, it opens up new possibilities for us that we can then uh, transfer back for our students' experience. I think also it was a great accountability structure. I think all of us came to the experience with some really wonderful ideas for projects that we wanted to do with our students, or I guess I should say experiences that we wanted to initiate with them. But, you know, since it's not a required component of teaching and there are so many required pieces, it's really easy to, you know, have these ideas but not implement them because it does take a lot of time and effort. And when you have so many other demands on the time in the classroom, it's easy to let the non-required things fall by the wayside. But when you have this monthly meeting with your passion to teach cohort, you want to report back on the things that you've implemented with your students. And when you run into obstacles, you have a group of people that you can talk to about it and brainstorm ideas for working through those obstacles. So both accountability and support just in terms of getting through difficult challenges with implementation. Yeah, since I've been doing the podcast, I've spoken to a number of educators who really speak to the how siloed teaching is. You may feel, you know, alone in your classroom and trying to generate these ideas all by yourself. So it sounds like a really integral part of project-based learning is community. And it sounds like community amongst educators, but also the community you're providing for students with whatever project you're working on. Can you all speak more to that community engagement on the side of students, how community benefited students as you were working on your projects? I think community was a huge part of my project, both for my students and for the rest of the community. When we think about inclusion for students in special education, we often think about the benefits for the students with disabilities. But we don't often talk about all of the benefits that the rest of us get from including everyone in our community. And I saw a really big, exciting benefit in one of our grocery store trips. So as I mentioned earlier, we were doing community-based instruction, which is going into community-based environments and learning how to navigate those as part of our larger project-based learning experience. And on our third trip to the grocery store, an older woman came up to me and she said, you know, I'm so excited to see your students here. My younger brother was born with Down syndrome in the 40s and he was put in a group home and I never got to see him again. And so it really means so much to me to see you here with your students. And I think that just speaks to how important community is in so many ways and how we all need to feel like part of a community. 
And that's really powerful. Randall, you mentioned the word siloed before and how teachers feel siloed. I think sometimes school itself feels like a very siloed experience and what goes on inside the building then doesn't translate outside. So this kind of learning, you know, we were working on a, a show that we were able to, first of all, invite other schools in to experience. And then we were able to take our show outside the school and give students the experience in multiple venues of performing for diverse audiences. They got some time on TV, the Box 25 News came and did a little thing on them, and they got to go do some performances at places that they, they otherwise wouldn't have. So that ability to not just sort of break down these little barriers intra-school, but to then take the school experience outside and show the larger community, here's what we're doing. And then the community is also invited to be a part of that. I think there's a reciprocal kind of a feedback loop there. It's so beneficial for, for students. What show were you were you all performing? We were doing a show called Little Rock, which was a sequel to a show that we had done the year before called Houston. And at the Haley, we've sort of taken on this task of trying to reimagine Black History Month. So our shows revolve around making Black History Month a month-long conversation, but within the context of a year-long conversation so that it's not just a kind of a throwaway idea. The show is in February but there's a lot of lead up work beforehand and then there's follow up work afterwards so that it's a full year of conversation. So what do you all think about the impact of project based learning when you think about equity and kind of reimagining teaching? What what connections do you see there? I feel like this is probably a great opportunity for you Jason to talk about your transition to sort of the virtual experience when it comes to equity and students accessing the performing arts through the, you know, sort of computer screen. So obviously the world's changed just a little bit. The bad news about doing Little Rock was that we never got to do the show. You know, the school, the school year shut down uh, the production before just about a week or two before we were able to get up on it. And so students didn't have that opportunity to, to finish. So when we started the school year this year, we really had to take a different tack and say, you know, how are we going to allow that same sort of access, that same sort of community feeling that we've been discussing to students who are not gonna have the opportunity to rehearse on the same stage at the same time in any kind of synchronous way. So at the Haley, we sort of co-opted the idea of morning announcements and turned it into a sort of a radio show. I know I'm gonna date myself right now, but <laughs> WKRP in Cincinnati, anybody? Dr. Johnny Fever? See, I'm seeing heads shaking, nobody remembers that. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically, it was a, like a morning radio show, you know, and it had all these different characters and all these kind of routines that would happen on the show. And so we sort of took that idea and we call it the Daily Haley. And so it's become this thing where every morning, you know, we have 200 to 300 students and their families tuning in at 830. And I come on as the morning DJ host and we have all of our specialist teams pitch in. So we have Music Monday and Art Tuesday and Wellness Wednesday. And there's a lot of games that go along with it that we've sort of, you know, made accessible through Zoom. It's a lot of fun because it kind of keeps alive this idea of we are a school family. So during the school day, we've been able to work with different classes and say, how would you like to contribute to your school's morning show? So we have students that put together their own, you know, mock commercials. We have some that do, they have the sort of the, what we call the Daily Haley Minute, where they have an opportunity to show a skill, they cook something, you know, and it's all video. So we get to utilize that channel as well. You know, one of the big words that we talked about was pivot. You know, we were like, how do we pivot? And we had to pivot like right in the middle of everything. What it's turned into is a new normal. It's the sort of thing that when this is all over, I think there will be an expectation of we still have this daily Haley because it's proved to be such a communal touch point for everyone to come together. And the fact that we can bring families in as well, getting back to that idea of taking what we do in the school and bringing it out into the homes and into the community, 
I think it's something that's probably going to continue long after this pandemic is over. Wonderful. That sounds fun. I wonder if we could, like, could we get a clip and could we put it in the podcast? Absolutely. You're listening to The Daily Haley, WHPS 570 AM, last on the dial, first in your heart. That's how we bring it up every morning. So. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's amazing. So, Louisa, have, have you been able to pull anything from, you know, your community-based learning into the classroom? I'm, I'm holding up air quotes for all my friends at home. Have you found a way to pull that into this virtual learning this year? Yeah, we have. So this year, we've definitely done a big pivot. But another component of our project last year was a student-run coffee cart. So the students got to make money through that business that they had and then save up for a planned purchase at the end of the year. And they also got to spread a lot of joy to other people in our school community through the sale of these delicious beverages every Tuesday. Now, obviously we can't sell coffee virtually. And even when we were in school for a few weeks in person for health reasons, couldn't do the coffee cart. So What we are doing instead this year is a greeting card um, business. And so I'm mailing out boxes on Friday, actually joy boxes to my students. And I painted a card for each of them and just included some toys and fun prizes that I think they'll enjoy a lot. I'm also including a paint set and some blank cards for them to paint on. And then we're going to digitize those and make them available for sale so that they can still have a business that they're running and a money-making venture and also a way to spread joy albeit in a bit of a different way. <laughs> I love the the innovation of educators. Like it really never ceases to amaze. Nothing can stop an educator. But, you know, that being said, you know, sustainability means everything and, and wellness of all those who are involved. And it, it reminds me of this year I was able to have students, I taught sixth grade reading and writing. I was able to have them write narratives from their lives of a moment that taught them a lesson of a moment they came to realization. And the podcast garage had just opened up its right by my school. And so we had a double block system that allowed us to go to the podcast garage and they were able to record their stories in the podcast. We had a whole night where families could record family stories, you know, for the publishing. It was great. But the next year, our schedule changed drastically in a way that made it so hard to kind of logistically work out that that the project didn't happen again. And so sustainability constantly sticks in my mind. So what are your thoughts on sustaining these wonderful projects that you all really put your heart into and get the community involved in? I think that's tough, right? Because the terrain is always changing. And uh, depending on what school, you know, you find yourself, that it could be a new schedule every year. It could be a couple of different schedule changes within the same year. So it is really tough, I think, to try to feel moored and anchored into something which has its pluses and minuses. On one hand, it keeps you fresh, definitely keeps you on your toes. But on the other hand, yeah, you, you do want to try to sort of build on success and, and see where to go with that. I, you know, for me personally, I think that uh, our arts team at the school this year was really tasked with this idea of keep the joy in what we're doing for the students. Keep it fun, keep them engaged, do whatever you got to do. And like you said, you know, that takes a certain degree of innovation when you're still trying to meet standards and now new health standards in place. But that's, I think, where Passion to Teach came in because the prior year, 
it was all about that passion. How do you find the fun in what you're doing? I don't think I've ever met a teacher who wasn't thrilled with that challenge of how do I do what I've been doing for so long and try to make it fresh, you know, each and every time. So, you know, in some way, the sustainability is the flexibility. The sustainability is knowing that you're always going to be trying to do something new. But I think what we got from PTT was here are some tools in your toolbox to do those new things. The specifics might change, but things like understanding the basics of what pivoting really looks like, understanding what networking really looks like, understanding how many people are out there in your network, how many stakeholders are actually on your side and how, how many new opportunities that opens up. So I think it's more of a philosophical mooring, a philosophical anchoring. And with that in place, as things change, it's, it's a lot easier to navigate. Yeah, building on what you were saying, Jason, about PTT helping us really focus in on what does it mean to pivot and pivot well. I think without support from Passion to Teach, I might have tried to somehow replicate the coffee cart in a digital format. I'm not even sure how I would do that, but I don't know. Like, you know, maybe we meet on Tuesday mornings on Zoom with and everybody brings their coffee and we chat. And that would have been nice too, but I think, you know, meeting with PTT really helped me think about, okay, what was the essence of our project before and how can we translate that over into this very different context and still remain as true to the most important parts of what we did before. It wasn't the coffee that was the most important part. It was the opportunity for my students to run a business and make money and save that money for something that they wanted to buy and spread joy in the process. Had you ever done that? I need to cut you off. Have you ever done that essential questioning? Remember one on day one? It was like, what's the, had you ever done that before, Louisa? No, not really. Hold on now. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to cut you off again, but you gotta, if you're gonna answer that question and tell us more, you gotta tell us what the activity is first and then finish. And then I won't interrupt you anymore. <laughs> yeah, Jason, jump in to your, do you want to talk about what that was? Well, I guess it was an activity, but it was really more of a straightforward ask. Like, what is the essential question behind your project? What's your why, right? I think in the vernacular, that's what we would say. What, what is your why? And as, you know, cliche as that might sound, when it came to what we were doing, like I said, teachers, blinders on, I have this much time to get this thing done. And sometimes you just rely on experience that you've already had and you just plow through it. But this was an opportunity to kind of sit back and say, why am I endeavoring to try to give this experience to my students? And automatically teacher mindset you know, is thinking in levels, right? You're thinking, well, really, what's the big reason why, <laughs> you know? It's not just, well, because we have a show to do on February 2nd. No, it's, what do I want my kids to get out of this experience? And then it's, well, why do I want them to get this particular set of things out of the experience? And it was a questioning that maybe a lot of us do, I bet a lot of teachers do it subconsciously, but what we had was the opportunity to pause and really try to delineate some of the things and then bounce that against other people in the in the cohort, which even that process, talking about each other's essential questions, then certainly made me revise my own once or twice before I was able to finally say, here's what I'm what I'm going after. And do you think that, you know, positively influenced you as well, Louisa, kind of taking you through that that thought process? I know you're saying the way it kind of helped you reimagine your own goals this year and move away from from the coffee cart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I was able to switch up the project pretty quickly and in a pretty big way, but still staying true to the most important parts of it. And I think not just for my project, but it has carried over to the more 
purely academic instruction that we do as well. You know, just really thinking about the why and more carefully and, you know, what do I really want my students to be taking away from this individual lesson on (laughs) rounding to the nearest dollar or something like that. You know, things that, as Jason said, we do think about subconsciously all the time anyway, but it helped me get back to doing that in a more intentional way for all of my lessons, not just for the project-based learning lessons and experiences. So, you know, Passion to Teach sounds awesome, but right now it's only available to Boston Public Schools teachers. And there are so many other teachers who are endeavoring to really engage their students through project-based learning. So it sounds like Passion to Teach helps you like zoom back and see the why, why you're taking on this project, you know, beyond the standards and really at the heart. And it helped you identify people in your community who could act as allies and contributors in getting this project done. What else would you want to kind of bring to surface for those teachers who can't yet take advantage of a Passion to Teach Fellowship? What else should really be on their minds when they're thinking about having strong project-based learning units in years? Well, I think one resource that was really awesome that PTT shared with us is PBL Works, the website, and all teachers have access to that. So I think that's a great place to start. But I do think even if it's not a network of teachers that you're meeting with monthly, even just like one accountability buddy who you can check in with about your project is really, really beneficial. Another invaluable source of support that PTT provided is funding through the Shaw Family Foundation. And even if teachers don't have access to that, you know, there are other funding opportunities such as Donors Choose and GoFundMe, things like that. So if it's a project that does need additional funds, then those can be great avenues for securing those. I'm curious for you, Marvin, like, how did you get to this expertise and real understanding of project-based learning and, you know, really getting to that heart and passion of, of what folks teach? I think it stems from my experience as an entrepreneur. When I was in college, I decided to start my own event planning business and I was doing weddings and nonprofit galas. And having gone through that process of starting a business, seeing it through, executing on things, but also having people buy into this vision I was creating taught me a lot of skills. And it was a project-based learning experience in and of itself, just starting a company. I didn't start it to get money. I started it because I wanted to learn. And so I am really excited about replicating that experience for teachers now and having them go through their own entrepreneurial journey. And I think for me, it's been really important to bring some of that entrepreneurship mindset and skills into this experience for teachers so that they see themselves as entrepreneurs as well. I think it's one of the most missed out opportunities in the education space, you know, teachers are naturally entrepreneurs, but don't see themselves in that way. And so that's sort of my driving force behind this work. That's really profound because teachers are constantly creating and innovating. Teachers are totally entrepreneurs. I think that's such a such a great connection, you know, that you've made between those two things. So that kind of leads me to this question, you know, you said even after it's over, it's not over. So do you all have any moment that really kind of highlighted for you that this was more than a project or more than a product for your students? Jason, I feel like you need to talk about our random phone conversation. One Friday evening, Jason called me with this great idea. He was already moving on to the next project. 
Right. So, so Houston was the first show that we did and it, it was well received. And so we did a, a sequel to it, which was called Little Rock. And then I guess the idea started to formulate of, you know, the thing that I liked most about creating these shows was that they were, with the exception of Little Rock, they were often about Black Americans or events that, that occurred around the Black experience that were really lesser known. So, you know, a lot of folks, especially if you're in the education field are familiar with the Little Rock Nine. Charles Houston, a lawyer who was the subject of the first show, most folks hadn't really heard of Charles Houston. I'm writing one now about Paul Robeson, and I'm amazed at how many folks have never heard of Paul Robeson. I mean, he was the biggest thing in American entertainment for many, many decades. So the idea was to try to create shows that exposed new generations of students to lesser known stories, and then see how we could have those shows leave my school and take place in other schools, high schools, other elementary schools. And so, yeah, so I called Marvin and was like, how would we even, how would we even do that? You know, and we talked about what does licensing look like? What does publishing look like? Again, what are the other opportunities that are out there? Who are the other partners out there that are willing to maybe take that on? And so it's, you know, it's, it's over, but it's not over. Sometimes the project itself continues on with a new cast of characters. I think the thing that I remember most though, was after doing Houston, having parents come up to me and say, my son or daughter had such a great time in that show. And by the way, I had never heard of Charles Houston and now, now I want to go find out more. That to me was, you're with these students all the time. You're feeding them all this information about a, a particular person. But to have the parents go beyond just saying, I love seeing my child in the show to actually saying, I felt like a student myself. I don't think there's a bigger payday than that. Nice. Do you have any bright moments, Lisa? I mean, I know you do, but <laughs> one you can you can share with us. I had a student who was really struggling with number identification, the numbers zero through nine, and he could add very fluently, but he couldn't read the numbers, and he was just really having a lot of trouble with that. Three was the number that he had the most trouble with. So when we went to our one of our grocery store trips, I had him look for an ingredient for our upcoming cooking activity from aisle three. So I gave him the shopping card, it said aisle three. And without my even having to prompt him or ask him, he was like, oh, I need to go to aisle three to find the Cheez-Its, I think it was, that he was looking for. And I was like, yeah. So though he had had so much trouble identifying the numbers, like right away, just when it had a meaningful context associated with it, he all of a sudden could identify that number. And when we got back to class, he asked for a number grid and he cut up all of the numbers and then glued them on back on a separate sheet of paper in order. And that was actually numbers one through 22 because the particular recipe that we were cooking that week had 22 steps. And so that was like way beyond what we were even trying to work on, you know, we were just trying to do zero through nine because I was like, those are the basics, you know, like, let's just get through that and then we can build on that. And then, I mean, literally since that day, he can identify all of the numbers. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just, I think once he just had a meaningful context for number identification, that's what it needed to sink in for him. I mean, I think everyone needs to know that what they're doing is important. Otherwise, why are we asking them to do it? So I think just the more ways we can build in that meaning, the better.
Thank you all for taking the time to share your thoughts. That was Marvin Vilma, Jason Weiss, and Louisa Sparrow, who all took part in last year's Passion to Teach Fellowship. You can find out more about them in the show notes. If you're a Boston Public Schools teacher interested in Passion to Teach, a program we run through the generosity of the Shaw Family Foundation, you can learn more at theteachercollaborative.org slash passion to teach. And thank you everyone out there for listening to this episode of the Teacher Collaborative Podcast. We'll be back soon with more amazing educators. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or share it with a colleague. Learn more about the Teacher Collaborative and join our virtual community of educators where you can ask your own questions and share your own stories. Visit us at theteachercollaborative.org and find us on social media at the Teacher Collab with one L. We'd like to thank the people who made this podcast possible. Our host, Randall Wilkerson, our producer, Robert Scaramuccia, and Ben Truboff for our theme music, The Dusty Pencil Sharpener. <laughs>